0: Welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast. I'm Fred Burton, the Executive Director of the OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. During my years as a counterterrorism agent with the U.S. State Department and time spent as a physical security expert in the private sector, I've seen it all and met many fascinating people along the way. This podcast series explores the riveting world of protective intelligence through conversations with leaders in the security field. I'm Fred Burton, and now on to the podcast. Hi, I'm Fred Burton, here today with Dr. Jillian Peterson, a psychologist, professor of criminology at Hamlin University, and founder of The Violence Project, a nonpartisan violence prevention think tank. Jill launched her career as a special investigator in New York City, investigating the life histories of men facing the death penalty. She then earned her doctorate in psychology from the University of California, Irvine. Jill is a sought-after national trainer and speaker on issues related to mental illness and violence, forensic psychology, and mass violence. She frequently appears on national news outlets including CBS This Morning, Fox News, and National Public Radio. Her book, The Violence Project, Understanding Mass Shootings in America, will be published in 2021. Jill, welcome to the OnTech Protective Intelligence Podcast.
1: Thank you so much for having me. Happy to be here.
0: I was fascinated watching your Twitter feed on some statistics concerning mass shootings, but I want to first talk about the Violence Project. What is it?
1: Yeah, we're a nonpartisan think tank, and we have kind of three areas. So we do research, we talk about data-driven public policy, and then the, we provide training. And for the last two or three years, we've been building a database of every mass shooter in America since 1966. So we currently have 174 mass shooters in the database using the definition of perpetrators that kill four or more people in a public space. And we've coded those mass shooters on 166 different life history sort of pieces of information. And the idea is to look for patterns in the lives of mass shooters so we can think more about how we can prevent mass shootings from happening. And another piece of that project has been actually conducting interviews. So we've talked to seven perpetrators of mass shootings and then about 50 other people like parents, siblings, victims, and first responders.
0: Jill, that's fascinating. And as you and I were talking in preparation for this podcast, I'm not so sure how I got into this business, uh, but how did you get in this business?
1: Yeah, so... My first job after college was with the New York Capitol Defender's Office, and I was an investigator there. And it was my job to go to Rikers Island and to talk to people who were facing the death penalty. And I developed what we called at the time psychosocial developmental life histories. So basically, how did this individual get from childhood up to the point of committing this heinous murder? What does that pathway look like? And it's from doing those investigations that I became really interested in the pathway to violence because in every time I was talking to someone, you could see all the missed opportunity for intervention and prevention along the way. So I became interested in how we can really, as a society, do more prevention work.
0: And of course, we have a tremendous following in the corporate security space and law enforcement uh, that, that listens to this podcast. So I'd like to talk a little bit about that. Let's talk about trends. What are you basically seeing in the mass shooting space?
1: So we've been on an upward trajectory up until this
0: year. Which is not a good thing.
1: No. So mass shootings have become both more frequent and also more deadly. So more deaths per shooting. And that's been a pretty remarkable increase. And the worst years on record were 2018, 2019, and then 2017. Now, since COVID hit, they've really dropped off, but everyone's kind of waiting to see what happens as we start reopening. What do you attribute that uptick to? You know, it's hard to say. Um, One thing we know is that mass shootings are socially contagious. And so when one happens, another one happens. We know that perpetrators study each other online. There's, you know, websites, these horrible websites where people try to kind of up the body count. And so we know there's been more radicalization on social media. Um, We also know that things like gun sales are up. We know that Political rhetoric can sometimes be triggering for people. And we also know that perpetrators who do this are in a state of crisis, and oftentimes they're suicidal. So this increase also maps on to other increases we've been seeing in other forms of deaths of despair, like suicides and drug overdoses.
0: When you look at commonalities in this space, uh, are, are there any things that leap out to you as you study these mass shooters?
1: Yeah. So our research has led us to this framework that we find is a common background in all types of mass shooters. So one is a history of early childhood trauma, and typically pretty intense childhood trauma, physical abuse, sexual abuse, parents dying of suicide. Second is a crisis point, a noticeable crisis point. So something happens that kind of pushes them over the edge and their behavior really changes and they often become suicidal at that point. And mass shooters, oftentimes their shooting is kind of their final act. Third is this radicalization and validation process where they're studying other shooters, they're on chat rooms talking to other people who are validating their ideas. And then the fourth piece is access and availability, so access to both weapons and their chosen site. But I will say, even with those commonalities, we do see differences depending on the location of the shooting. So K-12 shooters, for example, look different than workplace shooters.
0: That's uh, fascinating. Now, let's compare and contrast that. What does that workplace shooter look like?
1: So workplace shooters, the majority of them are insiders, meaning that they are employees of the place that uh, where they shoot. It's typically a blue-collar uh, workplace site, although not always. They are about 50% white, 50% African-American. They typically use a single handgun that they legally own, and most often it's an employee that has just been fired or suspended or reprimanded in some way.
0: Yeah, that's very interesting.
1: No women? No women workplace shooters. In our whole sample of 174, I think there's four women in it.
0: What do you attribute that to?
1: Well, I mean, it's complicated. I would say generally, if you look at all forms of homicide, men commit over 90% of them. And when we look at the ages that we see mass shooting happens, it tends to be either men in their early 20s or men in their early 40s which is the same trend you see when you look at suicide rates, it tends to be men in their early 20s and men in their early 40s. We know that men, you know, for whatever reason, are more likely to commit violence in all forms. So this would kind of follow that trend.
0: Jill, have you seen evidence of these workplace violence shooters telegraphing their intent before they actually Pull out the weapon and start firing?
1: Yeah. So we call that leakage in my field. So someone who would leak their plans ahead of time. And we talk about specific leakage and non specific leakage. So specific leakage would be saying, I plan on doing this tomorrow. Non specific is more common where you'd hear someone say something like, you might not want to come to work tomorrow. Or if anything ever happened to me, I don't know what I'd do. So sort of vague threats. And it's actually quite common for people to do that.
0: I know back in the day, I had a case involving an individual that had loaded up his vehicle with weapons and was driving to Washington, D.C. to to try to carry out an act of violence against cabinet level official and we were very fortunate that his mother reported him and we were able to uh, identify him and capture him before he was able to carry out an act of violence. And in the course of talking to him, he laid out this very methodical plot on how he had conducted surveillance and watched us for long periods of time which was just very eye-opening to us, as you can imagine. So in the course of looking at these individuals, have you seen evidence of them conducting what we would call pre-operational surveillance of targets?
1: So I would say there's kind of two types of perpetrators. And the one takeaway generally from this research is that there's no kind of single profile of a mass shooter. So we see some that do an extraordinary amount. Of planning for weeks or months or even years and scope out different sites and really have a methodical approach. And then we see other perpetrators who it kind of seems like an impulsive thing that's not well planned and they really haven't thought about it. I would say school shooters tend to do more planning. University shooters tend to do more planning. And then like restaurant and retail shooters in public spaces tend to do less.
0: Interesting. Now, what is the difference between those two shooters then? Have you had any kind of assessment or evaluation on that?
1: We've tried to look at that, and that's something we're actually looking at right now. There are certain perpetrators of mass shootings that really, I don't know how you want to say it, change the script. So do something that hasn't been done before. And they tend to inspire other copycat shooters. So people like the Columbine shooters or Virginia Tech or Aurora, Colorado. You'll see a number of other perpetrators kind of copying those perpetrators, wanting the same type of notoriety, wanting the same type of media attention, want to be known for something in their death that they're not known for in their life. So you kind of have the instigators and then you have the followers.
0: We'll get back to the conversation in just a moment. But first, I wanted to tell you a little about OnTech Center for Protective Intelligence. In the world of protective intelligence, we know that gathering and sharing information is crucial. That is why we created the Ontic Center for Protective Intelligence. We are regularly sharing strategies and best practices, insights, lessons learned from current and historical trends, as well as lessons learned from physical security experts like you. To find blogs, podcasts, webinars, white papers, and more, check out the center by visiting ontick.com. AI slash center. That's ontech.ai slash center. Are there any warnings and indicators that you have seen that's more prevalent?
1: Yeah. So that's one thing that's been probably our biggest finding is that over 80% of cases, 82% of perpetrators had a clear crisis sign. Wow. And most of them had more than one, two, three, four, sometimes five, six different crisis signs. And so this is a noticeable change in their behavior in the weeks leaving up to the shooting. And It's hard to say exactly what you're looking for because it comes across differently in each person, whether that's agitation, depression, being more aggressive than usual, sort of drinking more than usual, but it's a noticeable change from their kind of baseline behavior. And so if we can start identifying when people are having that noticeable change, it's a sign that something's up and it's time to sort of check in and figure out what's going on.
0: And are most of those uh, behavioral indicators uh, identified in the workplace, or at home, or a combination of both? So I would say both. We've talked
1: to certainly workplaces where a shooting has happened, where they would say, yes, there was a noticeable change. So one example is a shooting that we talked to a number of survivors, and they said the shooter had started showing up late to work. And this is a person who had been working there for a long time, never showed up late in the two weeks leading up. He was late every single day and was getting increasingly agitated and starting fights with people. And so there was a noticeable change. So those would be the type of signs that you would be looking for.
0: Interesting. And as you talk to these mass shooters, and uh, I I know from just talking to um, similar kind of people in the past, I'm always struck by at times their intellect but also how they go about explaining motive. H- how do you make sense of the mindset that, and, and maybe there isn't, but how do you go about making sense of what they're trying to tell you as to the reasons why they're doing this?
1: Yeah, I think everyone has kind of their own explanation. As a psychologist, you know, it's human nature when we do something to come up with some sort of way of explaining why or how it happened all the perpetrators we talked to had some level of explanation, whether it was I was drinking too much or I was delusional or I was so angry and depressed I didn't care anymore. Uh, When we went through the 174 shooters and kind of coded motive, and it's about only 10 or 20% are motivated by things like psychotic symptoms, hallucinations and delusions and sort of severe mental illness. More common. Is people motivated by things like relationships breaking up, being fired from the workplace, these kind of triggering events that push them over the edge? And then in the last five years, we've seen increases in mass shootings uh, motivated by racism, religious hatred, and also fame seeking.
0: And in the course of discussions with these mass shooters, have they explained to you their timeline for attacks? They have.
1: So I would say each one is different. The most common I would say we hear is that someone who has been thinking about it and has been planning it and has been interested in mass shootings for a long time, who has been gathering weapons, but it's then something happens that pushes them over the edge where they decide they're actually going to do it. And that can make it happen that night or that can make their planning go into sort of the next stage and it happens the next week.
0: Interesting. And as you study these individuals and think about prevention strategies. What are some things that our listeners can think about that can help them put together either uh, better monitoring plans or security plans or active shooter plans, what would be some of your advice surrounding that from just a practitioner's level?
1: It's a great question. So I think one of our big findings, especially when it comes to school shootings, college shootings, and workplace shootings, and also church shootings, is that the perpetrator tends to be an insider, meaning they are employees, they're students there, they're members of the congregation. So that means they are going in and out of these spaces all day long. They know exactly what security looks like. They've been through every active shooter drill that there has been. They know how the institution is going to respond. And in some cases, they use that inside knowledge to increase casualties rather than decrease them.
0: That's interesting. Just from a physical security perspective, that's that's fascinating.
1: Yeah, it really changes things when you think of somebody as an insider, and insider threats are just a lot more difficult. Also, we know that typically they're suicidal, and this is intended to be their final act. So it's pretty rare for a perpetrator to have an escape plan, which means a lot of our deterrent strategies don't work if the person actually wants to die in the act. And several perpetrators we interviewed said, my goal was to be shot by the police. So having an officer there is not going to be a deterrent. So we try to think maybe further back when you think about prevention, how do you prevent someone from getting to that point? We think that skills in things like de-escalation, crisis intervention, so if you see someone's behavior changing, how do you approach them and ask the right questions, things like suicide prevention, and also threat assessment teams, or sometimes we call them care teams, that can teams of people that can look holistically at someone who's in crisis who is maybe indicating that they might do this. And right now, sometimes I think we make the mistake of saying, is this a threat or is it not a threat? And if it's not a threat, then we move on. But I think our data is showing that if someone's showing that they're in a crisis, even if they're not an immediate threat at that moment, they could be down the line. So that's a moment where you really wanna dig in and having resources and intervention strategy.
0: So that's important for frontline managers, HR?
1: Right, exactly.
0: How do you deal with the times, You know, you have compartmented operations inside of companies where, you know, maybe the manager uh, is reporting something to HR, but HR is not telling security or, you know, there's a bit of a kludge from a, from a management perspective of that case inside a company. What would be your advice to help mitigate that?
1: Yeah, that's a great question. And we see that a lot of times in these cases, Is there's a lot of different people that noticed that little things were off, but nobody was pulling the whole picture together. And so that is what a team that's specifically dedicated to doing just that can do. The goal of the team would be, let's ask all these different people who interact with this person in different ways and see what they're all seeing. And when we have that complete picture, that lets us intervene in a different way. Also anonymous reporting systems can be really helpful, I think a lot of times employees or others don't want to feel responsible for getting someone in trouble, don't want to say something because they don't want to be involved. So having some sort of anonymous reporting system where people can anonymously say if they're concerned about someone else and then knowing that a team is going to follow up can be really helpful.
0: Yeah, that's very good advice. Now, in the course of looking at these individuals, you mentioned that most of the perpetrators utilize just a handgun or I assume a revolver or a pistol?
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah.
0: Not a shoulder weapon?
1: No. So it was, and I'd have to look again. So in the database, we did end up coding every single gun that was used in a mass shooting um, in terms of kind of exactly what gun it was, how it was obtained, when it was obtained, um, anything else we could about it. I'm not a gun expert, so I do my best. But the most common was a handgun, which was about 70 to 80 percent, depending on what type of shooting you're talking about. Assault rifles were used around 20 percent of the time, which is much higher than sort of other general forms of homicide.
0: Jill, what's your thoughts on, uh, I know I've written about this um mass shooting in the past. And it's, it's one that, you know, there's still a great deal of discussion in the community about with the Las Vegas shooter. What's your thoughts on that individual that had such a methodical, well thought out plan that obviously had been in the works for a while? What would be your takeaway on an individual like that?
1: You know, the Vegas shooter is a true anomaly in our data. He does not fit the profile. It's hard to discern the real motive. He was significantly older than any other mass shooter, significantly more methodical, I mean, in terms of the number of casualties. It doesn't even compare to other shootings. So he is a case that I think gets a lot of attention because he left so much unknown. It's very common for a perpetrator to leave behind a note or a manifesto or a video or something to explain why they did what they did, whereas that perpetrator left nothing. So he's one that we don't know a ton about. I think because we don't know a ton about him, we didn't see a copycat effect like a lot of people thought we might see. But because he didn't leave a lot behind for other people to kind of study and think about and glom onto, we haven't seen a lot of other shootings like his.
0: What do you make of his target selection? I know it's... uh somewhat frightening for people in our business. And you know this from just studying these attacks. I can't tell you the times I've stood post, uh, whether it be at an inauguration or a Middle East peace conference or something along those lines. And, you know, in the back of your mind, you're always thinking of that sniper out there. And, you know, why pick that venue and target? Would, what would be your assessment there if, if you had to guess?
1: Well, we know from the data that perpetrators pick targets that kind of represent their grievance with the world. And so school shooters select the school that's made them feel terrible workplaces. Shooters end up targeting the workplace that just fired them. So we know that people pick kind of representative targets. So my guess is that that shooter was angry at Vegas. We know he had had a loss a financial loss, uh, maybe angry at sort of young people having fun in Vegas when he was suffering. It's hard to know exactly why that, but that, that group somehow was representative of him to, of what he hated and what he was angry at.
0: Jill, as you looked at these cases, what was the longest length of time before someone actually came back at the workplace? Do you happen to have any kind of data sets that that look at that?
1: That's a great question. And I don't think we've actually looked at that. I can tell you that the most common was within a day and sometimes within an hour. So it it typically was not a very long period of time.
0: Wow. Is there anything else I haven't asked
1: you that you would like to talk about? You know, I think one thing that made me a bit more hopeful in doing this research is we talked to a few people who had planned to do mass shootings and had changed their mind. Some who had even come to the site with a gun on them and decided not to shoot. And when we asked them kind of what it was, that made them not do it, it was typically a connection with another person, somebody kind of reaching out, giving them a piece of hope, this sort of human connection that knocked them off a bit of this track that they were on. And so to me, that was hopeful is that even people who are that decided, there are still things that we can do to kind of knock them off the path.
0: Well, that's good to know. Dr. Jillian Peterson's book, The Violence Project, Understanding Mass Shootings in America will be published in 2021. Jill, thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you. This episode was brought to you by the ONTIC Center for Protective Intelligence. Learn more at ontic.ai/slash center. Again, that's ontic.ai/slash center. It was produced by A.J. McKeon. Our music is a track called Monte Verde Ride and was written by Brian Bristow and performed by Smoke and Novas. Check them out on Spotify. Please remember to rate and review our podcast on iTunes and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions, we'd love to hear them. You can reach us at podcast at ontic.ai or visit ontic.ai slash center for more information. And thanks for listening.